Welcome back. This is part two of the NASA Social episode for APL, New Horizons, and Pluto. Welcome to Today in Space. Hello, everybody, and happy Friday. The week, work week, is uh, pretty much over, and uh, we're bringing you the second half of the NASA Social episode. There was so much, we had to split it into two. Uh, basically, we would have gone to about a two-and-a-half-hour show, and uh, we don't really do those um, unless they're a live shot, so I figured split it into two, uh, and this gets you an extra episode on your drive home. Uh, from work. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff to go on here. And I, I want to start by going back to one of the questions from Dr. Alan Stern, uh, because I've, I've got a, a new friend of the show uh, who can help explain the chemistry a little bit better, because um, it's definitely not my strong suit. And uh, it's just a good opportunity to uh, introduce you to one of the new friends of the show. So just to recap, the question is, what can we learn from Pluto that can help us learn about the origins of Earth. And pay particular attention to the last part about uh, the atmosphere. All right, another question in the room. Hi, Doctor. I'm Emily Bloomberg, a history teacher at Morris Tech in New Jersey. And well, first of all, I want to say I appreciate the, uh, the Bastille Day connection because it's in a symbolic way, this is just as revolutionary. Um, my classes learned this year that uh, Director Bolden said that the missions in outer space help us learn more about Earth. So is this mission more that we learn about just what human progress and potential can do? Or can we actually learn more about Earth from this mission? Or is it more the later missions that we'll get after this first one occurs, if that makes sense? I'm really glad you asked that question. It's an excellent question. And we can learn um, about the origin of the Earth in three different ways. Um, the first is by studying the, uh, the Pluto system itself, by studying the small planets. We can learn about how the building blocks, that were the, the lumpy potatoes and planetesimals of the solar system, built small planets out of which bigger planets came to exist. And we've never studied um, any, any planet like Pluto before. So that's the first one. The second is that the origin of Pluto's satellite system is strongly believed to be the same origin mechanism a giant collision. It spalled material off of Pluto and into orbit, where it coalesced into the satellites. It formed the Earth-Moon system. In fact, the Pluto system is the only known example in our solar system uh, of a formation mechanism for its satellites, like Earth-Moon. So it's very important to planetary scientists to have that second example. And we've known that that was part of the motivation for going to the Pluto system, was to study the origin of, of its big moon sharing. In analogy to the Earth, but there's also a third way. Pluto's atmosphere is rapidly escaping, in part because Pluto is a small planet, and in part because there's a heating mechanism in the upper atmosphere that adds energy to the molecules. And the escape rate of Pluto's atmosphere, the escape mechanism, is called hydrodynamic escape, which is a fancy term, but it, all it really means is that the escape rate is much higher than normal. It's, it's due to that high temperature. And the same thing took place on the Earth. Right after the Earth formed, when it was still molten, its atmosphere was hydrodynamically escaping. 
Originally, Earth's atmosphere was made of hydrogen and helium, but that's all gone now. That's the process through which the hydrogen and helium left, this hydrodynamic escape. It's been discovered by theorists on blackboards, and, it, and it's been modeled in computers, but it's never been observed on a planetary scale. Pluto is the first place where we can go to study a process that fundamentally reshaped the Earth's atmosphere from a poisonous hydrogen and helium envelope to the atmosphere that we enjoy today. So that's another connection. All right, so talking about those, those three things, you know, the last one being that early on, especially on Earth, there was hydrogen and helium gas in our atmosphere, but it burned off due to the high temperatures. And luckily, uh, I met uh, Talon Bevan at the, at the NASA Social, and she runs Dynamite Chemistry, which is an online learning community for chemistry on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's basically, uh, from, from what I've read, it, it looks really good. I mean, it looks like she's, she's out there to, uh, to help people learn chemistry. I wish I had known <laughs> of this community when I was taking chemistry because I definitely could have used some help. So uh, if you're a high school student or maybe you're in college, um, from what I've seen and from what I've talked with Talon, it, she seems like she's very knowledgeable in this. Uh, she's in school now and she's, and she's doing dynamite chemistry, so please go check that out. But just to, if you don't believe me, let's hear her explanation of, of why that happened, just to give you another side of it from someone who's involved in chemistry. All right, so according to Talon Bevan, the H2 and HE, or hydrogen and helium gases, escaped our early atmosphere because they're exceptionally light gases, which of course means that they were moving very quickly. And the added energy of all the hot temperatures made them move even faster, and so they escaped Earth's gravity. So thank you, Talon, for that, for that explanation. I, I, I definitely got that uh, a little bit better. It makes a little more sense. Hope it made more sense to you guys. And again, uh, we'll hear more from uh, Talon later in the episode, uh, another quote from her from this weekend. But if you're on Facebook uh, or Twitter, check out Dynamite Chemistry. As it says on, on the, the Facebook page, it's one chem major's enthusiastic mission to reach out and help high school students learn about our chemical universe. I like that. Clear, concise. She's got a message. She's doing stuff. I like it. It's nice meeting someone else who's very passionate about what they do. Um, just like everybody else that I met on that weekend. Um, totally diverse backgrounds from, you know, I don't think there was a, other than being a student, I think that was the most repeated background <laughs> of everyone who was there um, from all different places. So Talon's just one of the many people I met on that weekend. Uh, just a, a incredible to meet and uh, go check out Dynamite Chemistry if you need some help or if you just like chemistry. So please go check out Talon Bevan at Dynamite Chemistry on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, now let's get back to the broadcast audio and, and all the cuts. So the next individual that's up is Chris Herzman, a mission systems engineer at APL. So shout out engineers. Um, but no, it's very good. He goes over uh, the spacecraft and, and what it's made of and, and the different instruments. So you'll really get a, a better idea of, of what each instrument is like and, and what's, what's involved, where they are, why they're there, placement, and uh, then we'll get into some questions. We're going to get up here and talk a little bit now for a few minutes about the actual spacecraft itself and what's on board and everything. So up next to join us here is Chris Herzman, 
who is the mission systems engineer here at the Applied Physics Laboratory. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Jason. So I'd like to, it's my pleasure to give you a tour of the spacecraft. This is my favorite part of the, uh, the mission. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's our job to carry those instruments to uh, Pluto and take all those observations. So I was involved in the development. I was the spacecraft system engineer when we were building it. And then I uh, was promoted uh, to the mission system engineer after launch. And, and I'm going to go over, uh, give you a little tour around the spacecraft. You've heard a lot about the instruments already. Um, just to give you a perspective on the size, I always use my arms. You know, I stretch my arms out and say that the high gain antenna, this white uh, dish, is just a little bit longer than you can reach. It's, uh, it's about 80, approximately 80 inches. And, um, and the whole spacecraft, you heard, was like a, a grand piano. And you'll notice that on this end of the spacecraft, this is all hanging out by itself over here. Uh, and you might say, well, why is that? And, and there are a couple reasons for that. First, um, it provides balance for the spinning mode of the spacecraft. And I brought a little uh, uh, prop here to, to describe that. Um, it was very expensive to make. But, uh, <laughs> so they wouldn't let me throw the models around. So I, uh, but, but by balancing the, 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 the RTG, which is the power source, out on the end by itself, and all the instruments on the other side, you get something that'll spin, and, uh, and then you don't have to use thrusters to keep the spacecraft pointed at the Earth. So if you go over the Earth, uh, and it was spinning this way, that way you, you keep the high gain antenna pointed at Earth without using any fuel. Just like everything else in, in space travel and, and just traversing through outer space, fuel is everything and, and accounting for every single measure. So with this balance that they've done with the spacecraft, they've 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 created this situation where they can they can really optimally use the spaceship to the the way that they need it to be and not use tons of fuel to to adjust everything because every move you make you may need to make a counter move it's a very important um, and before we get to the next clip uh, I just want to say some of these clips again uh, I had to remove either for um, electronic feedback reasons or uh, because they're just overly uh, visual and it just doesn't make sense audio wise so if you want to get the whole video which again I highly recommend the link will be up on this link on todayinspace.net and the previous one and if you also just want to look it's on YouTube so uh, without further ado let's get into the next part of Chris Herzman's talk talking about the instrument Alice and again just in case you forgot uh, ALICE is a compact general-purpose UV imaging telescope slash spectrometer. And a spectrometer is an instrument that separates light into its constituent wavelengths, like a prism, but better. And on New Horizons, it's going to be used to probe Pluto's atmosphere and what it's made of. And Chris Hirschman goes into how it works. So um, I'm going to move down to, to the first instrument that we're going to talk about, which is ALICE. And this instrument is the ultraviolet one. Alan told you a lot about it. So if you have questions about the details of that, you'll have to go back to Alan. But, but I did want to talk about how it's used. So the, the high-gain antenna is pointed at the Earth at the same time as the little aperture on the side of Alice is pointed at the Sun. And they both measure as, as they traverse through into the shadow of Pluto. And they traverse through the atmosphere and make measurements along the way. Next, Chris talks about the instrument Ralph, which is just in case you forgot, a visible near-infrared multispectral imager and short-wavelength infrared spectral imager. All right, so what is it doing? It's going to map the surface geology and composition of Pluto and Charon. 
and it will also be used in comp uh, combination with Alice for atmospheric studies and to map the surface temperature of Pluto and Charon. And then we'll move on to the, the RAF instrument, which is the, um, the, the infrared and visible camera on the spacecraft. And you'll notice this big white area is a radiator, and that's to keep the infrared part of, this, of the instrument very cold. And it's a double radiator because the, the spacecraft is very warm inside. Well, very. It's um, room temperature, which in space is very warm. But, um, and then this instrument is very cold. And so what they do is they have two radiators to keep this radiator very cold. Then this one actually keeps isolates even further. And then there's a, a feed that goes in there and connects to the, uh, the electronics that's the detector of the instrument. And that keeps the detector very cold. It takes uh, infrared imaging. It can, it can uh, get uh, less noise in the uh, measurement. That's, it's an interesting point uh, to bring up here that, you know, with Chris Herzman, he, he's the engineer. And basically, uh, what it... From that last bit, what, what you can really take away from that is with, with an engineer, basically you can have the science team say, we need to do this, we need a spectrometer on board, we need infrared on board. What the engineer is going to do is say, okay, we need to get this on board. And he was talking about the heat issues and that, that keeping, keeping the infrared on the outside to keep it cold. You need to do that because if you bring it, if you keep it on the inside where it's extremely warm, your infrared is going to be, it's going to be useless because you're going to be picking up the heat from the inside of the spacecraft and that's going to be useless to your readings. So, you know, the, the, the reason you need the engineer is to make sure that your stuff works properly and to fix all those little problems on the way so that your mission does what it's supposed to do. Next up, Chris talks about some nuclear energy with the uh, radioisotope thermal generator on board. So now we'll move around to the other side of the spacecraft and you'll see the, the radioisotope thermal, gen thermal electric generator. And you'll notice um, it's, it's black, uh, it's also very hot inside, and the, the heat from the inside and the cold uh, outside in space allows us to generate electricity from that temperature differential. All right, so just in case you just kind of brushed off that last sentence there, let's replay that one more time so you can just grasp exactly what he just said. And the, the heat from the inside and the cold uh, outside in space allows us to generate electricity from that temperature differential. They're creating electricity from a change in temperature, albeit it's extreme, but still, how, how inside, I had no idea you could do that. And maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe there's other things that work that way and I'm just, I'm missing the concept, but just in case you were blown away by that, no, I am too. I mean, that's, that's crazy that they can, not only they're running a radioisotope generator on there so that they, they have power, they're also getting power from the, the difference in temperature that it's giving off anyways. I mean, the, the heat it's giving off is like excess, you know, like when you've got a power outlet in the wall, you've got, and it gets hot, it's because it's, it's burning off the extra energy it's not using, right? So this thing is, is recycling the energy that it's giving off that it's not being put through, and they're making it electrical energy so they can use it on board in space. That's crazy, and it's just, you know, if, if you weren't paying attention, it just kind of goes like, oh, you know, one ear out the other. But I just, it, it's incredible, absolutely incredible that they can do stuff like that. All right, <laughs> on to the next one. This next clip 
is Chris Harris been talking about the gain antennas, gain, G-A-I-N antennas uh, that are on board and they're super useful because they help us communicate with the spacecraft. Uh, so now we'll go up to the high gain antenna and we'll see that there were a lot, this is the assembly of the high gain antenna. And there were a lot of antennas on here. Uh, the low gain antenna was used at launch because it can uh, see one hemisphere of the space of the Earth or wherever it's pointed, and then there's another one just like it on the bottom side. So that way if the spacecraft comes off and we're pointing in some odd direction, we can talk to the spacecraft. Right now though, uh, it's so far away that these are useless now, and so we don't use these anymore. We have this medium gain antenna, which we use for our beacon mode, and when we're, when we're in, a, in a spinning mode and we're not pointed directly at the Earth, we can use this to tell us that the spacecraft is fine. And what we do is we point it in a specific direction where uh, in the future the Earth will be right in the center of the antenna. And that way we can talk to it once a week and say, actually we can listen to it once a week and, and the spacecraft will say, everything's fine and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then uh, the high gain antenna is the one that's really important for the Rex observation. That's the radio science. Okay, and the radio science he's talking there at the end is, of course, the instrument uh, Rex, which is the radio science experiment. So, uh, thus the Rex. Uh, and that instrument is going to be used to measure atmospheric composition and temperature. And it's a passive radiometer, which is an instrument used to detect the intensity or force of radiation. So, there you go. Uh, up next, we've got Chris Herzman talking about the instruments SWAP and Pepsi. SWAP, S-W-A-P, is the solar wind around Pluto. And it's the solar wind and plasma spectrometer, measures atmospheric escape rate, and observes Pluto's interaction with solar wind. And Pepsi, yes, P-E-P-S-S-I, or Pluto Energetic Particle Spectrometer Science Investigation, uh, energetic particle spectrometer uh, measures the composition and density of plasma ions escaping from Pluto's atmosphere. Now I know, you know, these names are, are helpful because, you know, we know what it does, but I don't know, maybe get some comedy rise in there, guys. Uh, you know, help you work, work some, work around these words sometimes. I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but, uh, all I'm saying is, you know, try it out. See, see, see if it happens. You know, you guys are, are good with your brains. Have someone with good with words. Name them. <laughs> All right, back to Chris Erzman. And now we'll go to the next uh, set of instruments, which are on the other side of the spacecraft. This is the solar wind at Pluto swap experiment. And you can see the launch doors are deployed. And it has a, a very large uh, fan-like uh, field of view. All the way around here is where it, it can receive uh, signals and, and the advantage of that is that while the cameras are all pointing around and looking, this can still make its measurements because it, it has such a wide field of view in this plane. And the same with if we go up to the Pepsi instrument, it also has a fan beam antenna, uh, which you can see up here. And I think it'll go soon. Is the video move? There we go. Um, so you can see here the fan. Uh, beam of the energetic particle uh, med, uh, instrument, this is Pepsi, and then there's also this, uh, this here to shield uh, the, the solar influence. And actually, it was to shield the high interactions with the high gain antenna because of where it's placed. So it's an in-depth uh, decision-making 
that, uh, that you'd only get from an engineer on why it's there and kind of the, the advantages of, of what each instrument can do. Uh, up next is uh, Chris talking about LORI or L-O-R-R-I or the long range reconnaissance imager. So all the images you guys and gals have been seeing on the approach to Pluto was taken with LORI. So it's a telescopic camera. It obtains encounter data at long distances and maps Pluto's far side and provides high resolution geologic data. And pay special attention to the beginning here where Chris explains just how, how much has gone into planning a mission this far away and that they basically need to plan for the future every time that they do something with the spacecraft. So now we're going to go around to the long-range imager, which is on the back side. It's the biggest uh, aperture. This is about a meter across, or about uh, a yard. Um, and that, that is what we take the approach images with and for navigation. So when we're going up, we're going to take pictures of Pluto and the stars in the background and, and figure out, better than we can do on the ground, where Pluto is with respect to the spacecraft. And then we actually adjust the time of the commands that will take all the observations so that they're synchronized with where the spacecraft is. And then we'll also send up an ephemeris so we can, uh, so that everything will be in, in lockstep with, with the way we planned it. Uh, and then over here you can also see the star trackers. The, these are used for um, attitude to determine where the attitude is. And there's two of them for redundancy. We only need one, but we put two on, on board. And we have uh, what we call our autonomy system, which will switch from one to the other if one isn't working. And that is an important part of a spacecraft that's going to go and be nine, you know, nine hours away. Uh, if we wanted to tell it to do something, we wouldn't know whether it did it until you know, nine hours till we get the message back. So it's got to take care of itself and tell us what it's doing. And if for some reason it couldn't use these, uh, next we'll go up to the sun sensor. We have a mode of the spacecraft that says, I'm, I'm, I don't know anything, I'm lost in space, I'm going to point to the sun, because the sun, when you're so far away at Pluto, is very close to the Earth. So if we point to the sun, then the Earth will be able to talk to the spacecraft. So it's not actually because we need power from the sun, but because we want to communicate with Earth. Now that's really incredible. I mean, that just gives you a scope of just how far it was. I mean, if the fact that the, the image from the Hubble Space Telescope is a bunch of pixels, if that didn't, you know, give it away, uh, just the fact that pointing at the sun is just as good at pointing at the earth, it, just because of how far they are away, I mean, that's incredible. And thank goodness they have a mode like that on board, because uh, if it didn't know where it was, we would be in trouble. All right, so that's the end of uh, Chris Herzman's talk, so we'll, we'll go into the questions. And the first one is about, you know, RTGs, the radioisotope thermal generator, and you know, kind of what what is it? What is it done? Does it make people more willing to put radioisotopes on board, or what was what was the situation with with this mission and getting something, you know, nuclear or radioactive to launch into space? All right. Next question comes from Lowell Observatory. Lowell. Hi, uh, Enzo Vito, Lowell Mass Social, Embry Riddle Prescott. Uh, how has the use of RTGs on New Horizons uh, changed the attitude, uh, political or otherwise, of uh, utilizing radioactive material for power systems uh, for deep space missions? Thank you. Uh, 
that would be a more programmatic question as far as, um, you know, I could tell you that uh, we, there wasn't much resistance for uh, New Horizons because it, it was a direct launch into space, so there weren't any flybys. It also had uh, one radioisotope thermoelectric generator and no other, um, no other radioisotope heater units. So the analysis for the safety was very straightforward and simple, and we made a conscious decision to do that because we had a short schedule. So we were launching a, a, a power source that had already flown, already in this configuration similar to like Ulysses, and so the analysis was pretty uh, straightforward and safe. And uh, so I, I think uh, we would have to pull the audience or the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the um, you know, the public to see what how it has changed their perception. But, um, but I, I never had any concerns. There you have it. A little, little history on uh, how to get something with uh, with radioisotope and, and nuclear power up into space. Uh, you know, well, as we've talked about on the show before, it all comes back to flight heritage. If it's flown before, it's probably going to fly again. And flying something new, uh-uh. It's uh, you're going to have to test it. And uh, I think if it was a new version of some uh, of an RTG it would have been a lot more difficult to get it up there. The next question talks about uh, and answers kind of a little question of uh, you know what's the lifeline of New Horizons? How long is it going to last in space? So this question comes from Twitter user Turen who asks how long will New Horizons last in space? So that's a good question and uh, it depends on uh, what things could go wrong first. So but, or if everything goes right, um, th there are things that you can do that, that take on more risk. So it, it, we've actually calculated that if all things go well, um, we'll be, we, sh we can confidently uh, maintain until the mid-30s, 2030, uh, 2030s. Uh, and that's, but, but if you ask me and instead, uh, I was betting, I think we could go longer. So there you go, confidence from one of the spacecraft engineers and into the 2030s, so another 15 or so years uh, at least. And uh, the next question goes right along with that. If it does last that long, where is it going? All right, next question from in the room. With that, the follow-up on what you just said about the 2030s, mm -hmm. and then earlier Alan talked about the decision about going which direction. Mm -hmm. Let's say that it lasts beyond 2030. Is there any future future plans beyond the next venture for New Horizons? Yeah, there is actually uh, some future plans, um, but of course they can't be uh, decided on until there's funding and all, all of that. So from a, uh, an engineering and scientific, the advantage of, of going longer is that you can take uh, the measurements from the particles and plasma instruments and, and measure the interaction uh, between the heliosphere and, and the gap, you know, the galactic uh, medium. So that right now Voyager has transfer, uh, transferred into, you know, out beyond the heliosphere and, and the interactions that they, they discovered in that boundary was very surprising. And so we would actually be able to, to make another measurement um, in another part of the uh, heliosphere. You know, and see that that transition into, uh, I guess, outer space. You call it, but, but it's uh, beyond the solar influence. So again, the student dust counter, the SDC, coming real handy if we can get the the spacecraft to last that long. 
uh, that that student dust counter is going to do some incredible work because with with Voyager already out that far, you know, to be able to analyze the dust and so quickly, uh, we can really kind of figure out what happens when you start leaving the influence of the sun and and its gravity. So and outside of the heliosphere, it's a uh, That'll be some very interesting stuff because even with Voyager right now, we don't know where it is or where the line is or <laughs> if it really is outside of the gap. Next up is a two-parter. So this is, uh, I have another question coming up here. Woo! Um, and, you know, it was kind of funny with uh, the, the last guy who talked, uh, Tony, who's, who's an amazing person. Hopefully I'll get him on the podcast at some point. But uh, it was really funny because we, we both had mics and it was just, it was like, oh, no, you go, you go. And it ended up working perfectly because the, uh, uh, the woman over at Lowell, the other observatory in Arizona, uh, was working in tandem with New Horizons, uh, with the NASA social event, um, asked the perfect segue to, to my next question. So listen up and hear your boy ask his question. Next question comes from Lowell Observatory. Hi, my name is Natalie Felder, and my question is, what is the exterior body constructed of to withstand the vacuum and pressure of deep space, and how vulnerable is it to the elements of the unknown, so to speak? Oh, that, that's a good question. Um, so the vacuum is not a problem because there are uh, vents that let the air out. So when you launch uh, and you go into the vacuum, all the air that was inside vents out. So now it's a vacuum. So that's not a problem. But for the... Um, the, the protecting against uh, micrometeoroids, uh, meteoroids, what we did is we took the, the thermal blankets and we put standoffs all around the, the spacecraft. There's like little um, toothpicks, sort of, or, or little, little standoffs to, to raise the blankets a little bit bigger. So when you saw the, the spacecraft with the blankets, they're not pressed right against the uh, spacecraft. They're actually uh, stood off as like a bumper for the, the um, very small particles that might be in, in space to allow them to hit something and then uh, disperse before they so that they won't penetrate the surface of the spacecraft. Um, and then we also put a, um, a very dense uh, layer of Kevlar in the blankets. So we have the thermal blankets, but we also have a layer inside of there that's uh, very strong. Um, it won't stop uh, the, the particle from getting through that blanket, but what it will do is break it up so that when it does hit the, um, the deck of the spacecraft, it won't penetrate, it'll just make, make an indentation. So that's, that's how we designed the, the spacecraft for that. All right, next question in the Thank room here. Uh, Alex Rafanis from Today in Space. Thank you, Lowell, for that last question. Perfect segue. Uh, how is that attached? Because it looks so thin, and it, what, is it a tape or the, the uh, blanket, paste? Yeah. Uh, they have, uh, I believe it's Velcroed as well. So um, one of the things that we did in our testing is that we had to be very accurate about how, um, how much heat was leaking out of the spacecraft. And so in order to prove that um, we could do that, we actually had to, to put the blankets on, test it in a thermal vacuum, take the blankets off, and then put them back on again and make sure it was the same. So that when we put them back on the last time, it, it, we could have confidence that it was going to be the same. So um, I, I believe it's Velcro and tape. Um, and then the, the standoffs have like a little, uh, you know, it's like a, a washer or something that holds it up, and then and then it's fastened on the top. So, um, but we have we have amazing uh, uh, 
uh, thermal engineers that, that will sew these blankets. And it's really quite an operation. They have a whole model of the spacecraft, and they build it on the model, and then they have to piece it off. It's like a custom dress or something for them. <laughs> So there you have it. You know the uh, I guess it, just in case you you uh, you, you might have missed it, what we were talking about the thermal blankets. It, you've probably seen it on a bunch of different spacecraft. You know the moon lander had one. Um, you know the gold foil looking outside. You know uh, when when I was touring with with uh, Sarah for the uh, the wonderful Sarah at the National Air and Space Museum. Um, you know, she was asking me, what, what is that attached with? Like, how does it stay on? It looks like it's really flimsy. And I didn't know. So it was a perfect question to ask. So uh, thank you, Sarah. And more importantly, now we know. Uh, it's Velcro. And uh, apparently a really tedious process. But I, I, that makes sense. you got to be able to put it on and, and take it off. And it, it fits right back on the same way. Uh, so pretty interesting. Get to get to kind of figure that out. And the Kevlar makes sense. You know, uh, got to have some kind of protection. Basically, you need bulletproof <laughs> something for those micrometeoroids. Always getting shot at by something, right? That's, that's space. Uh, so that ends uh, Chris Herzman's section uh, of the talk. And next, we're going to get into Kimberly and Nico Smith, uh, who is one of the scientists who's involved with the New Horizons team. And so one of the things I thought was very, very interesting was she was talking about kind of a day in the life of one of the members, which I found really interesting because one of the things I try and I really try and focus on here is kind of the people involved. So it was really cool to kind of get in, uh, an inside look on, on what it's like. And uh, it's very intense. Uh, just. Before, before I, I, I show the intro, I just want to um, explain. It's, if, if, if you have any trouble trying to figure out what you're doing today, then never mind tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now or even what you did in the past, this job is probably not for you. So, <laughs> but to explain that more, here's the introduction from uh, Kim and Nico Smith. Uh, an intro to the day in a life. Up next from NASA's Ames Research Center, we have Kim Inico. She's here to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be on the team and the preparations that they're making for the July 14th flyby of Pluto. So, Kim? So being a NASA social, I want to convey to you the day in the life of what's going on right now. We are 37 days from closest approach. Um, we are in date of year 157, and a lot of times these numbers and dates are in my heads because in the course of a single day, I may be thinking about something that was months ago, weeks ago, this morning, tomorrow, next week, and the next year. So doing this juggling. So I just want to give you a sense of uh, a day in the life of the operations. Uh, the mission is long, nine and a half years, launched in 2006, gets to Pluto in 24, uh, July 14, 2015, nine and a half years. But it hasn't been, you know, you launch it and then you put it to sleep and you forget about it for nine years. What this uh, graph represents here is seven years of the mission scrunched down into a slide, color coding time, time from left to right, the different periods of activities. 
typically after launch instrument checkout, the Jupiter flyby, which occurred a year and a half after launch, went into this cruise mode. During the course of the cruise mode, we would go to the instruments would go to sleep for several months of the year and wake up about twice a year, for which we would do calibrations, see if everything is fine, checking whether the temperatures were working well. So this has been the course of action for the last seven years. The colors here represent, um, purple is when it's in the spin mode, which Chris had alluded to. We go into spin mode, it gives us a stabilization for the antenna uh, pointed at Earth, saves on fuel. We're not taking any pictures then. Those yellow periods here, short, just a, a week here, a week there, twice a year, that's when we go to three axis mode to do some observations. We go to the next slide, 2015. Our encounter started in January. Yes, July 14th is going to be the day, but our team is really busy right now. In fact, it's very busy right now. And um, I've indicated a red line, we're at June 6th, about P minus 38, P meaning Pluto minus 38 days. What you see here is just an expanded of 2015, is that we woke up of hibernation in December of last year, went into three axis mode, and started a series of optical navigation using the LORI instrument to look at Pluto, Charon, and Nixon Hydra with two different modes and measure precisely where we're pointed because we used that information and did a correction maneuver a few months ago. And we are planning the next maneuver on June 15th. However, that's not certain because the team today is looking at data that was taken down three days ago that got brought down today, and they're looking at it right now, analyzing it, and a decision meeting, meeting decision will be made on Monday whether or not we're going to go ahead with a burn in a couple of days. So it's very busy right now. All right, so pretty interesting, right? And following up on uh, the last point about the, the, the burn on that Monday after, because this was the weekend of June 5th and 6th, um, they, they did, in fact, use a 45-second thruster burst on uh, June 14th, and that refined New Horizons trajectory towards Pluto and just, you know, helped it target itself even closer because at almost 3 billion miles away from Earth, it's a very long way to make, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be perfect, so you got to make these burns to make sure you're going in the right direction. Uh, the tiniest bit off and uh, you could be in trouble. Um, and just another thing, you may have heard it, I don't think I ever mentioned it, but so at 2.95 billion miles from Earth, New Horizons is uh, really far away, first of all, but second of all, it, uh, the data that goes back and forth, it travels the, at the speed of light in space, and that may seem fast, but at almost 3 billion miles, it takes almost four and a half hours reach Earth, and then the other, so if you're sending something to New Horizons, you wouldn't know what it said for another four and a half hours. So that total, that nine hour window is, you know, is, is, is the important number to remember here. And that's at the speed of light. So, <laughs> uh, but let's uh, go into the next clip with uh, Kimberly Enico, and this talks about the special encounter mode that they use on New Horizons. When we get to um, July 14th, 
couple days before, the, the bar turns orange. That's just an indication that we put the spacecraft into a particular mode called it, um, encounter mode, where autonomy aboard the spacecraft um, will reboot the computer in case we have a CNDH, a command and data handling event failure. We have this one opportunity to do the flyby, and we can't wait for the spacecraft to go safe. So we have a special mode that was tested. We tested it during a rehearsal a year and a half ago, because we wanted to make sure that the spacecraft, on the, all the systems on board the spacecraft would execute. So doing a full rehearsal of what we would be doing with the spacecraft this summer, in this July, two years ago, retired a lot of uncertainties of how the actual spacecraft will behave. I like the name of that, encounter mode. It's, it's good. It's, it's a nice name for it. Um, but even even more interesting, you know, was the, the idea of the rehearsal, you know, a year and a half ago. It makes complete sense when you think about it. Uh, but again, one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense after I learned that they do that. Um, and in the interview, we'll, we'll put up uh, in just a little bit, there's a few more clips, but I, I had a special uh, post-interview um, with uh, Kim Enico, and uh, we talked a little bit about that rehearsal. So remember that, and uh, the next clip gives you a little bit more information about you know, how the team works, the dynamic, and what will happen uh, for that first data load after New Horizons passes Pluto and starts sending stuff back. To give you a glimpse, I'm just going to give you a sense that in the current day right now in my life, and also in the life of the team, because I do want to quote one of my heroes, Emmett, from the Lego movie, that everything is awesome <laughs> and everything is cool when you're part of a team. The whole team <laughs> aspect is just crucial because we have to have so many eyes with so many different disciplines reviewing the data product. So I had hinted that in the course of a day, I could start my morning having a conversation, talking about something we did three months ago. We're sitting in a review of something that's going up to the spacecraft two days from now, um, to <coughs> planning the downlink of the data that's going to occur over the next year and a half. This is an example of a load that we were just reviewing that is for after the flyby, the first load after the flyby, to give you an example of a planning product that we have to prove. What you see here is the green, this is an STK image, and the, the green represents the field of view of the LORI imager. And um, as to quote one of our sequencers, when she made these images for the science team review, she said she got all sad because Pluto and Carrot started getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as we're going further and further away. Also, the illumination is different. We fly in when Pluto and Karen are illuminated, like Gibbous. Um, but then as we fly through the system, become thin crescents. So they become darker and more just very different worlds. And we have a, um, a specific series of images that we're going to take, looking back at these thin crescents, to look for dust, to keep on understanding the system, because we're not going back. So um, this is something that we're planning for July 21st. So there you go, a little bit more information on kind of what's going to be happening with the team and the New Horizons mission on the week following the July 21st, uh, sorry, <laughs> that's when it's going to be happening, <laughs> the July 14th flyby going into the 21st of July. All right, so in this final clip uh, for Kim Enico's talk, uh, she talks about how really important it is uh, just, just on the encounter and, and why and how New Horizons takes data 
and how important it is that they have the ability to save on board because as you'll learn every second is super important and every second they're talking to it is a second missed for learning about Pluto. And um, it had been mentioned before that you know we are um, downloading data right now we're in June and we're getting data that cover all different types of sciences um, so we're taking the data and downlinking as best as we can. When we get to the actual July encounter, we have to fill up those recorders as best as possible. Um, we're not downlinking that much because every second looking at Earth is a second not looking at Pluto. And when you pass through the Pluto system at 36,000 miles per hour, 50,000 kilometers per hour, passing through the system, you want to take as many pictures and as many spectra as you can. So we just fill up those hard banks. And then starting in, we have a couple of snippets of data, then starting in August, out going up for um, a year and a half, is we'll be downloading this data. So, um, and I've been involved in planning for that. So in the course of a day, um, I've been thinking about the past. I'm looking at data, doing science. I'm helping review what's going up to the spacecraft in a month's time in a week's time, in a couple of days' time, I'm um, thinking about the future. We're preparing for the encounter. Um, today, um, we're getting data down for the um, NAV and hazard, hazard team. They're analyzing the data right today, right now, because they may need to make a decision on Monday. So it's a very active period for the whole team. And um, you can follow us along by always looking at that DSN website. It shows you when we're in con connection. We're not talking to us. A DSN all the time, but we do talk to it several times a week, and um, and also looking at the website to see the latest images from Lori. So, just it's very very exciting time right now. We haven't even made it to July 14th. We've got uh, 37 days to go. <laughs> so really, just a pleasure listening to uh, Kim talk about the team and, and just learning about what, what being involved in a team like that is like, especially with it being one of a kind. It's the first really of its kind to, to have a mission like this. So to learn what, what it's like is very interesting. Also, good luck, Kim, <laughs> with uh, dealing with uh, living in the past, future, and present all at the same time. Um, uh, kudos to you for being uh, organized enough to handle that. Uh, <laughs> I would have a hard time with that myself. Um, but it was really fun talking to her. And perfect segue into the interview afterwards that I had with her. I had a few minutes while uh, everyone was talking. Now, it was a crowded room, and I did. I was so into the conversation that halfway through I was like, oh, can I record this? And luckily, Kim was nice enough to have me do that. So um, in this, she talks about you know, how important that rehearsal was a year and a half before to prepare for where they are today. I learned a few things about our GNC system, our guidance and navigational control, because our simulator wasn't so great in that area. So we actually had to like change a little bit of the way we, how we wanted to do it. So the rehearsal was just, it was super important. It was so important. Because yeah. it gave you fidelity mm. into this whole operation thing. Because every load that we put up, we always run it through a computer. It's called the simulator, spacecraft simulator. And you can only test so far. The test did the command run. Is the timing run? Did the um, one of the two of the instruments are scanning spectrometers, and how we do our scanning is only done with thrusters. All right, let me jump in and just kind of 
give you where my mind just kind of exploded there. They're, they're scanning instruments. They're not, it's not like you're not turning the head of a, uh, a scanner or anything. They have to do that with fuel and with thrusters. This is extremely difficult. And it's also extremely using, it's using consumable stuff you need, you know. But as we've seen and, you know, as everything seems good uh, and well as they, they make their approach to Pluto, New Horizons is definitely a very interesting spacecraft. So we, we don't have any other moving parts. And so you do this thing and you have to make sure that the thrusters or the GNC system is moving at the same rate you're taking your data, otherwise you'll smear. And so that had to get practice. You had also had to show that the GNC system would complete its maneuver before you started taking data. Otherwise, you'll have some like weird stuff at the beginning. So, so we like we worked that out because that's well, that's rehearsal. great though. Yeah, because that's yeah. That's a and now it's all like you know, knock on wood, we're not going to find any hazards. But right now we're just like keeping up with the decision points and right. being anxious. <laughs> So like I said, just a joy to talk to Kim Enico, and uh, just it, it just shows how you know important a rehearsal like that is. Because all the things she mentioned in the second half of that, that interview clip, they would not have known had they not had that rehearsal. So um, just a, just gets you to, to understand, you know, not not it's not to, to overwhelm you of like how difficult this job is. It's just to understand that. You know, this doesn't just happen. This isn't a one-time. You know, they're not. Not everybody is brilliant and perfect and gets everything. This it's it's preparation done continually so that they can make sure that, especially with a mission like this with New Horizons, where it's a flyby, they're traveling at insane speeds. Let me look up the speed real quick, though. One sec. And through the beauty of post-production <laughs> and uh, Eyes on the Solar System, which is NASA's uh, program, it's, it's really easy to use. Uh, you download a quick thing. It runs on a, 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 game, a video game engine. It's beautiful. And you can literally click the link when, once you open it up, and you, you, it brings you to a computer-simulated live image, uh, live uh, simulation of where New Horizons is with Pluto. And as I'm looking at it right now, it's got 18,266,000 miles to go. Uh, and it's traveling at a relative speed of 30,795.22 miles per hour. So that's like 31,000 miles per hour it's traveling. And it's, that's super fast. So with, with all this stuff, to, you need to prepare because that flyby is probably only going to last a few hours at most. So they need to make sure everything works and if there's any kinks or anything that uh, doesn't work, if one of the modes, like uh, if the encounter mode doesn't work, then or something isn't right, they can fix it. And that's why they do a rehearsal a year and a half before. <laughs> so just really cool to learn that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, again, the NASA eyes is is really really cool. And I guess uh, if I remember correctly, you can get up to 4K resolution with NASA's eyes, and that's that's incredible. Um, it, I think it's super smart to go with a game engine on this. Um, I love I love it. And you can this, it's super easy. It's click and drag, guys. Click buttons. They they've really made it really easy for you. Um, there's in in the video uh, the broadcast video that'll be in the link at the end um, there's a great demonstration on what you can do 
um, how to use NASA's eyes. It's very, very easy. And there's even a simple mode. Um, so check it out, especially for this uh, New Horizons mission. Uh, you can literally check out what it's doing right now. So <laughs> really cool stuff. Also, to the power of social interaction and actually talking to people, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, we have the new friend of the show, Talent Bevan, uh, who runs Dynamite Chemistry. She was also there asking questions at the same time. So we've got another quote for another interview that she had uh, talking with Chris Herzman afterwards. So to quote Talent Bevan, also, after the panel conference, I got to ask Chris Herzman about what the spacecraft is made of. It is aluminum arranged in a honeycomb pattern, corrugated in the way that cardboard is. Aluminum is a great light metal, and by corrugating it, it makes it strong. So you end up with this really lightweight but durable material, the perfect thing to make a spacecraft out of. So there you go, a little bit more. A little uh, tag team action for uh, bringing you as much content as possible for this Pluto episode. So thank you again, Talon Bevan. Go check out Dynamite Chemistry, a beautiful place to learn chemistry, and as she put it, Dynamite Chemistry is an online learning community for chemistry on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks to her, we had a nice explanation as to why the hydrogen and helium gases escaped our early atmosphere. So there you have it, everybody. That is the end of the NASA Social episode from the NASA Social Weekend at APL, June 5th and 6th, for the New Horizons and everything Pluto. Uh, I really hope you all enjoyed uh, this massive two-parter episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun to put into. I met, again, so many interesting, fun people that uh, it really made the whole experience. I mean, it was a NASA social, you know? <laughs> it, it seems silly to say that, but, you know, it really was a social. We got to meet uh, some incredible people. Everyone was all into space, but the thing that really struck me, and I've said it and I'll say it again, um, is just the different backgrounds that everyone came from. You know, uh, to go back to my list, where are you? Well, here we go. Students, gamers, teachers, military men, military women, artists, chemists, YouTube stars, Twitter icons, comedy writers, popular mechanics writers, entrepreneurs, space enthusiasts, and all the members of APL, New Horizons, and NASA Social. It was a pleasure meeting everybody. And I really hope to get to do another one of these again. Um, you know, if I get the opportunity, you'll, you'll have another episode like this just packed with information from the event. Everything that I can scrape together and with the more friends we get from the show, like Talent Bevan from Dynamite Chemistry, we'll be able to bring you even more things. So uh, again, thank you to everyone who got involved with this. Thank you everyone for listening to the show, following us online at todayinspace.net, on Facebook, Today in Space Podcast, or on Twitter, my feed, at El Greco, E-L-G-R-3-C-O. And I uh, just want to say it's, it's been an incredible ride the last month, um, and we're, we're going to keep going. Um, the Facebook page alone reached 5,400 people last week. Like, what? What? We reached science to 5,400 people through the posts. It's incredible. All I have to say is Samantha Christopher Reddy from the European Space Agency is a rock star 
without a doubt, the most popular astronaut I've seen in my time doing Today in Space. So welcome home to her and the rest of the Expedition 43 crew. And uh, good luck to the other three left on, uh, on board orbiting on the ISS and the two involved in the year in space. There's so much going on in space. It's, it's hard to keep up with it, especially <laughs> even if we do it in a weekly format. But we'll do our best here. Uh, but these, this week and July is all about Pluto. So just wanted to give you guys as much as you can handle with Pluto. And uh, I, I, I think we did. I think we've accomplished that. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you for listening to Today in Space. And we'll be back next week with um, the assistant. We'll be doing some space business. So we'll have a lot of stuff coming up with you guys. Uh, remember, if you like the show, subscribe and tell one friend. Tell someone else about it and let the, let the word spread. Spread the science, spread the love. Good night, everybody. Thank you.